Hey there. Today, I want to talk about branding and positioning. And because I'm not particularly an expert on either of those things, I've brought in a guest. Mara Rada is an expert. I met her through the Founder Institute where we were both doing mentoring for a number of different sessions. And I was very impressed with the insights that she was able to share with founders. So I'm excited to be able to bring her onto Field Boot today. Mara is an expert in naming, branding, and positioning strategy for innovative companies and emerging biotech. And you can find more about her at thinkferral.com. So without more ado, let's jump into the interview. Mara, welcome to Feel the Boot. Hi, Lance. Happy to be here. I really appreciate you coming on. As usual with Feel the Boot, I like to have experts in topics where I'm not an expert come on and share some of their experience. And we met through the Founder Institute. We were both mentoring a couple of their sessions, and I really enjoyed hearing what you had to say to those founders. And so I'm very excited to be able to bring you on Feel the Boot today. Thank you so much. Yes, I've been mentoring with the Founder Institute and uh, a few other accelerators for uh, maybe four years now. And it's been a great experience, uh, both in uh, giving and in learning. So uh, I, I really do appreciate uh, the, the time spent there and meeting you was a pleasure likewise. It's interesting how much I think all of us mentors learn from the people we're advising. It's definitely not just a one-way street. No, no, never. So we're talking about branding and positioning mostly today. And I wanted to actually start off with yours because you describe yourself as a feral thinker. And I love that term. And I wanted you to explain what you mean by that. Um, it's, uh, if you want, it's the, it's a new phrasing of the old, uh, thinking outside the box and, uh, with a little bit of nuance of, uh, of always trying to find solutions to survive, to adapt and to perform better. Um, feral, you know, it, it comes from feral animals, um, who do everything in their, uh, in their power to survive and many of them end up thriving. Uh, we have a lot of feral animals, at least in my back home, uh, in my home country, uh, who manage to thrive once they are released into the wild and become feral. So they, they become rewilded. And I think that in, in the business space, uh, whether it's corporate or startup, we are seeing a lot of uh, anxiety when it comes to trying something new. And the problem is that staying the same is most times most dangerous, more dangerous than, than trying uh, new ways, than trying something new, than trying to be different and distinct, and then trying to position yourself uh, differently. Got it. Exactly. Right. Choosing to do nothing is still making a choice. Uh, and, and often any movement will be, will be better. So we're going to be talking branding and positioning. So maybe I think we all use these terms all the time, but I'm not sure we all agree on sort of definitions. So why don't you share how, how do you define those terms and what do they mean and why are they important? So in terms of branding, especially in the startup world, it's mostly seen as, okay, let's get a logo and a color palette. 
that's not what branding is. In my opinion, branding is everything that a company does uh, public facing. Uh, branding and part of the branding experience can be customer service, can be how fast or how uh, pleasantly a company answers its its customers. Uh, because branding is the face of the company towards the public. So everything a company does is part of that branding. Um, in terms of, of positioning, what I mean when I say positioning is... Um, has, has a variety of, of factors. We can talk about the um, factual positioning. How much does the brand cost? Uh, how much does the product or service cost in comparison to others or the larger category? Or how it is positioned perceptually because there is also a perceptual positioning. How does the company make the customer feel about that product? which may be very similar towards any other product. Let's, let's think of fashion brands. Uh, many of them sell t-shirts. But if, you, if we think we pay a price for a Hugo Boss t-shirt and another price for a George t-shirt that we can buy at Walmart. Uh, so there is the price positioning, there is the perceptual positioning, how do we think what do we associate with that brand when we think of it? And that is something that most founders, especially in the tech world, are not familiar with. Uh, and, and they think of, of positioning as something that uh, they need to say or they need to, uh, to embrace. And uh, many times it, it is resumed to pricing. But most times people don't necessarily choose a product because of its pricing. And if pricing is one's only differentiation, well, guess what? A competitor can always drop the price. And then you can start price wars. We've seen them in, in bigger companies, but it happens in, in startups. A new startup gets new funding from a new VC and they want to wipe out the competition. And if pricing is the only distinctive advantage that you have, uh, it's not going to be good for you. I hear this frequently from many founders. We're the cheapest. Well, if you're the cheapest, that's not a sustainable business advantage. That's not how you position yourself. If you're the cheapest, what I hear as a strategy person, as an investor, is you're not well positioned to succeed if you're the cheapest. Unless you're the cheapest and you're released by you, you have financial strong financial capital behind you, the fact that you're the cheapest, in fact, tells me that you're not well positioned to succeed. Right, exactly. I, I love this definition of, of branding and positioning because it is so broad, right? It encompasses so much more than just, uh, you know, getting that, that media packet of colors and logos and letterheads and whatever else you're going to have there. Do you think that's the most common mistake that founders make is not understanding the scope or, or other, other, other mistakes that you see really frequently when you're working with startups? Um, I think that uh, one of the mistakes is uh, looking just at um, the financial aspect and not thinking and looking at the product and financial aspect, not realizing that we buy emotionally. 
there is plenty of research showing that we buy emotionally first and rationally later. And even though we think we choose something rationally, many times we look for reasons to justify what our heart, so to say, has already chosen. And perceptual positioning, immaterial positioning, is always more powerful. Emotional positioning. We choose what we want. Then we try to justify and rationalize our choice. And I think that in the tech world, we have this perception that we need to be product-led growth. Well, not all the best products succeed. There are many great products that have failed. And one of the reasons is, is related to the lack of an emotional positioning. We think that buyers are rational beings, and they're not. Right, exactly. The, so many, so many people justify the decision that they've already made by trying to employ logic. And I think I've had the same debate with a lot of founders who will, you know, just keep hammering on. But this is better, and being better doesn't doesn't win. Right? There's huge numbers of cases of companies that obviously had the better solution, but still ended up losing out in the market for for any of a number of other reasons. Just the product itself is not sufficient. And I know there is this perception of uh, and, and theory of product-led growth, which is hammered by many uh, schools of thought. But when we're focusing only on product, we're missing out so much more. Having a great product in the highly competitive environment that we see today is a minimum sine qua non. Uh, it's the minimum, minimum condition from where you can start. Uh, if you don't have a great product, you're not going to succeed. But if all you have is a great product, that is not enough to succeed. So I just want to interrupt this interview for a quick moment to ask you to do me a favor. Please like this episode, subscribe to the channel, and ring that bell to be notified each time new episodes are released. Even more, if you go to Feel the Boot and sign up for the newsletter Bootprints, extremely low volume and we will never sell any of your information, that actually does guarantee that you get notified every time new episodes comes out, but more importantly, it gives you access to my office hours. So you'll be able to get on my calendar and we can talk about any topic that you need help with on your startup. So where do you start when someone comes to you from an early stage company? What's, what's your initial discussion and how do you sort of structure that, that conversation with them? Well, before deciding whether I take on a client or not, there is the discussion of whether I can work with that client or not. For example, if I'm going to meet someone who thinks that product is, and pricing is everything, that's most likely not going to be a great fit and i know i won't be able to help them because it, it will be a, a battle of uh, two hard rocks i i believe in what i'm doing not just because i'm doing it but because i have the experience and i've seen how uh, the greatest corporations of the world do it in my experience working for them so if it's not a, a mindset alignment then there's no work together if we do have a mindset alignment, then we explore how can we be different? What emotional advantage can we exploit? Can we create and then exploit? 
how do we position ourselves? And there are many positioning tactics. Some of the most common ones are find yourself a brand enemy. Um, and this is something that you probably uh, see on LinkedIn, where we both uh, are active uh, day to day. There are many so-called gurus who all of a sudden, uh, you see they start throwing punches at something or someone. That is brand positioning or product positioning through a brand enemy. Uh, I've, I've seen a category growth guru uh, throwing punches at, at branding. I'm not going to name names, but uh, uh, because they are selling category design, they throw punches at branding saying, oh, branding is insufficient and you choose category first and brand later. And I always want to ask them, do you buy a sports car or do you want to buy a Porsche? You buy brand first, in my opinion, uh, when a brand is established. When you are creating a category, unless you have a lot of capital behind, establishing a category is, is very difficult because establishing a category doesn't mean, okay, I decide to, uh, uh, I'm not going to sell tea, I'm going to sell uh, jasmine infusion. And my category is jasmine infusion. Uh, but the, the part, the category creation means you need to convince the entire community to refer to that thing in the way you're referring to it. And unless you have massive budgets behind, that's very hard to do as a, as a startup. Um, like Apple created spatial computing. Okay, but Apple has the power to support spatial computing. If I come here and say, I'm creating spa uh, spatial computing, nobody is going to care because I don't have sufficient resources to promote that and establish it as the category uh, uh, determinant for the entire community. Got it. So it would be like the, the big players were able to get things like performance beverages accepted as a term, whereas if you're trying to create some new drink, you kind of have to go with the, the the established nomenclature? It's, uh, you don't have to, but unless you have something radically new and the business wits to, to have it develop, it's going to waste the... Uh, somewhere because it won't be supported. So how often do you find companies that are in a position to exploit that category design? And, and how often do you suggest that they try to avoid that and stick with more, more conventional sort of branding and positioning approaches? It depends, first of all, on what they do. If they have something that's radically new, um, I work a lot in, in the health tech space and biotech space. If they have something radically new that's supported by science and research and uh, there is a founder who, uh, who has uh, the commercialization intelligence, uh, that can succeed. But if there is another startup who has yet another, uh, I don't know, MarTech solution, it's going to be extremely difficult to, uh, to, to start creating a category unless they're 
one of the more established players. It doesn't mean you have to be number one to succeed, but being part of the top group, the leading group in your category helps. If you're a, a novice startup and a novice founder, it's probably better to, to try to, to get a catchy name that creates emotional engagement um, and I can talk about naming uh, for the entire night. Uh, what's a good name? What's a, what's a bad name? But uh, there are other ways to establish emotional connection because the reality is that whether you go through a more traditional branding approach or you're trying category design, you sell when your buyer is emotionally connected to your organization, to your product, or to you as a founder. So do you have any examples of where uh, companies, maybe companies that you've worked with or ones that would be sort of well-known that you think have done this either particularly well or particularly poorly? Um, I have the example of a client that I worked with who was uh, very new in the beverages market, which is a highly competitive uh, market. And they established uh, a new category um in my home country of Romania, the category of rosades, uh, rose-based drinks. Uh, the, the process was, let's create a name for the company uh, that takes them out of the lemonade category because they were a lemonade with roses. They were also the rose producer, an organic rose producer. They had... Um, they're not called orchards, maybe you can, gardens of roses, um, edible roses, and they were producing these roses organically. And by using a name related to the rose and not to the lemonade, we were able to, one, um, register the trademark and take them out perceptually of the very crowded category of uh, lemonade. Uh, there are hundreds of lemonades on the market, but there is only one rosade. They've, uh, they've established this particularly well, and they were willing to go through the process of trademark uh, registration, which many of them are told not to by some other mentors. And now they're seeing uh, doubling uh, their, uh, their uh, sales and, and revenue year to year. Um, and in, in such a category with well-established players, it was quite a success. Now, an example of doing this poorly, I've seen an example on LinkedIn. Um, one of the companies there at some moment pivoted to, to do uh, revenue development, they said. Few months later, a competitor who apparently worked with a category designer came to do um, revenue research, revenue R&D, which was extremely similar to the first one. It wasn't saying anything new and it wasn't establishing any desire for that particular so-called novelty. And what I'm trying to say by that is that just because we decide to call something differently doesn't mean we've created a category. 
it just it may just mean that we're making things dif more difficult for a buyer who is used to seeing something in in a way and they're gonna want to buy a sports car not a, a four-wheeled uh, something something even <laughs> though we may want to call it like that four-wheeled rapid moving vehicle exactly <laughs> you know it's funny i had i got very lucky with my company anonymizer uh, back in the day that we really were creating an entirely new category of business and were able to establish Anonymizer as the as the the description of it. That actually then became a problem. We had it trademarked, but it then quickly became generic, like Xerox or Band-Aid or things mm -hmm. like that, where many of our competitors wanted to use the name of our company as a description of their company. And if, have you seen that? And are there ways of avoiding that transition? There are many companies who are suffering this, this fate. On, on one hand, it's good that everyone wants to be like you. On the other hand, there is the part of policing the mark. Uh, big companies always have very powerful uh, brand uh, policing, and they have lawyers who do just that. Whenever they see something that's mildly similar, uh, they send. They start by sending a letter of cease and desist, and uh, it it can uh, uh, advance from from there. Uh, Kleenex is a company that was able to establish a brand as a category name while also preventing everyone else from using the brand name. And people use Kleenex, but nobody else does it. Uh, while while many other companies were less successful in in doing in doing that, um, sneakers, for example, it's it's more common to to refer to uh, training shoes or sports shoes as sneakers, even by brands who are not sneakers. Got it. So what kinds of branding and positioning do you think founders overlook the most? Where should they be paying attention that is sort of not even on their radar right now? I think most of them um, don't pay sufficient attention to vocabulary. Uh, they tend to get lost in technical explanations. Uh, they want to be extremely descriptive. And that descriptiveness uh, most times makes them sound just like the next competitor. Um, they think that people won't understand if they communicate emotionally, which is not true. Uh, and by being over, overly descriptive, uh, they end up boring the audience or uh, being uninteresting to them. Do you think that relates to the the advice I give a lot about talking in terms of benefits versus features? Does that tie into that? Uh, to to an extent, yes. It, but it's more than just benefits versus features. Uh, most times, if if we look at how some companies describe their benefits, it's also very product oriented, as opposed to being really really user oriented. 
uh, and it, it talks about their product, but it, it, they fail to place that product within the user's uh, daily routine or emotional needs. Even when you buy a software, you don't necessarily buy a software because it does the best job. Maybe you buy a software just so that you look good to your boss. Uh, maybe you're not the CEO, you're some manager who needs a software and needs to look good. And maybe they're not going to buy the best product. They're going to buy the product with the best reputation because they want a safe purchase. Uh, I've seen companies who refuse to work with startups, particularly because of this perception that they're unstable and they, what if they're not going to be here in two years and they don't want to take the risk. And usually the larger the company, the more risk averse. And we need to find ways to tell that buyer, whether it's a manager in a company or someone who buys something for themselves, that they're going to be successful using our product. And that success is not always uh, financially related. That success is, is much more comprehensive than just the material value that uh, we tend to associate with a purchase. So how did you get interested in this whole space of branding and positioning? Um, the start was by pure luck. Uh, I was in university and I wanted a job. And a friend told me, we're hiring at our advertising agency. And I asked, what's an advertising agency? Oh, we, we do commercials, you know, the type that you see on TV. Hmm, that's interesting. So I went there and uh, that's how I started. And I was extremely lucky. It was a creative boutique with, uh, with great work. And from there, I moved on to, uh, to working with some of the top advertising agencies in the world, including Ogilvy, Gray, OMD, and working with Fortune 50 and Fortune 500 clients. Um, but the beginning was pure luck. Once I got there, I discovered this whole um, environment that was absolutely fascinating. Um, copywriters are fascinating to work with. They have these brilliant minds and they make these word associations that say everything so witty and so clearly and in so few words. Uh, and they're very different from uh, your typical uh, LinkedIn copywriter, um, who I think is, is not at the level of uh, advertising agency copywriter. Many of them aren't. Uh, many of them don't have um, education in, uh, in that uh, field. Uh, most copywriters are coming from um, a humanistic experience. Uh, they study English or whatever the native language is in the country where they work uh, or literature. And uh, they like to play with words. Uh, while others just decide that, okay, I'm going to take a copywriting course and afterwards I'm a copywriter. Well, it doesn't really work like that. So where can a founder sort of go to try to educate themselves a little bit about this so that they can recognize snake oil? They can tell whether the person that they're hiring or, or contracting with actually knows what they're doing. This is a very difficult 
question because the copywriters that are really well established are going to work most likely with uh, high caliber agencies and are going to be completely unaffordable for a young founder. But there are a lot of copywriters who left these agencies and went on to open practices of their own. Um, so one thing to do is when you check someone's profile, uh, look down and see what has this person done before. Just because they're say they're, they say they're a copywriter now doesn't mean they have any sort of training to do that. Uh, look behind in their experience, see if they worked with any reputable agency. First, make a list with reputable agencies of the world and you're going to find uh, a lot of big names and a lot of uh, creative boutiques that have won awards and uh, some of them are not very big but are still very famous and see if they worked with any of those. And if they did and if you like how they write, that's probably going to be a good fit. And these people who went, uh, who left the corporate advertising to open practices of their own uh, are going to be a lot more affordable than hiring an Ogilvy agency, but still uh, they're, they're going to be expensive. So when you want good copywriting, if it's dirt cheap, then it's probably worth dirt. Got it. Now, for founders who, you know, maybe even, you know, pre-funding, pre-revenue, uh, where can where can they go to to learn how to do this if they are sort of forced to do it themselves on the whole? Are there any good resources for, for learning kind of some of the basics at least so they can avoid the, the big One obvious mistakes? excellent resource is 42 Courses. Uh, they have a lot of courses on copywriting from some of the most brilliant mind, minds in the industry. Don't just go and buy a course of someone who has 60,000 followers or 10,000 followers or whatever. That doesn't mean anything. Um, go and ask uh, good copywriters, the ones you see are working in an agency, Maybe some of them will want to work for, uh, want to do freelancing with you uh, for equity. Or ask them, and I am giving this resource, maybe others have other resources. Ask them, and they're going to send you to places that are better than just someone on the net who has established a following who says, okay, I'm selling courses. Uh, we've seen when the pandemic hit that all of a sudden everybody was an expert in, in something. Uh, we've seen people who had just finished university or people who have not finished any university all of a sudden becoming experts in a field in which they have not been active for a year. So how can you be an expert there? You become an expert after 10,000 hours, it is said. Uh, so I think you need a minimum of 10 years in an industry, in a field, to be able to call yourself an expert. If you don't have that, of course, some of them are really fast learners, but most people just follow the, uh, 
regular distribution curve and probably aren't. That's right. And, and, and even if it doesn't take 10 years, it's unlikely to be one. You're, you're unlikely to be a, a factor of 10 faster. Yeah. So is there anything that you wanted to, uh, to share or, or plug uh, places people should go, things they should look at? I, I do post some um, opinions on our website, Think Feral. Uh, we, uh, we like to, uh, to share perspectives there. Um, but it's not a regular posting. I'm, I'm not the person who, who shares, um, a, a newsletter a week. Uh, I write when I, because I write the material, uh, when I find something interesting to, to talk about. Um, but I don't like to just talk about myself. I like to, uh, to push other uh, people in the industry as well. Uh, there's someone I highly look up to. Uh, there are many people I highly look up to. There is George Tannenbaum, who uh, who worked uh, used to work for Ogilvy, RGA. Uh, he was involved in uh, in a number of uh, startup campaigns when he, once he went on his own, including UPath. Um, there are uh, there is a. Uh, uh, Manoj Jacob, uh, who um, who is an Indian uh, copywriter and then works for uh, Crayons, is uh, the CD there. Uh, there are many people to follow, but try to follow someone with agency experience because they're going to know a lot more about this than someone who is obviously young and less experienced uh, and is more in a position of learner than an expert. That's great. I really appreciate those list of resources and I'll make sure I, I get those captured and put those uh, down in the description of this video so people can uh, link through and find all of those uh, those people. And I, I really do think that Feel the Boot is an excellent resource for uh, for founders who need to understand how to uh, how to do fundraising, how to think about a business. Uh, whether before they start or after they, they started, there are, as a founder, there are so many things that are completely unknown. And you come in a business with your uh, field of experience and you realize that the business has all the fields of experience and you only have experience in one or two. So I, uh, I myself follow your, your articles and... Um, your, your post and I find tremendous value in, in, in them. And uh, thank you for doing that. The, the community needs it. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate the, uh, the vote of support. Well, it's been fantastic talking with you. I really appreciate your insights in this area. And uh, I think this will be of great value to the, uh, to the Field of Boot viewers. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for watching this episode. I hope you found it useful and interesting. And once again, I want to thank Mara for coming on Feel the Boot. I think she had a lot of great information to share and gave us a bunch of resources. And I'll make sure all of those get linked in the blog post as well as in the description for this video. Until next time, ciao.